the alternative stories and fake realities podcast audio drama poetry fiction You're listening to the Alternative Stories and Fake Realities podcast. In this edition of the podcast, presented by me, Sally Walker-Taylor, we look at Somebody Loves You, the debut novel by acclaimed poet Mona Arshi. We'll bring you extracts from the novel read by actress Raki Sharma, an interview, and some of Mona's poetry. Somebody Loves You is published by And Other Stories on the 16th of November, And we'll include details on how you can buy or pre-order the book later in this podcast and in the show notes. But first, in October, we caught up with Mona Arshi via Zoom to talk about her debut novel and the process of writing it. The interviewer is Chris Gregory. My guest today is poet and now novelist Mona Arshi. Mona, welcome to Alternative Stories. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. We spoke to um, Selena Godden a while ago, and she'd managed the transition from being a poet to to writing a novel. And I wanted to start by um, asking you how you'd found that transition from from being a poet to a novelist in writing your debut, Somebody Loves You. Oh, yeah. So um, first of all, Selena Godden, I didn't know she was writing that book. And it was so interesting to see um, another poet going into this new terrain that I was also exploring. And I suppose the answer to the question, how how do you transition is that I don't really I don't really see it as a transition as such. I, I feel like I am a poet that has written a novel, a novel. I'm not a novelist that has written a novel and that's sort of really important <laughs> um because the kindling for the for the book um when the protagonist really was was poetry you know um i think that in a way it is a novel of course but it it's so poetic and it's sort of in this is in this sort of really hybrid space where i'm using poems um to tell some of the story and to also to um, explicate some of uh, Ruby, the protagonist's feelings and trauma memory, um, and to do it in in poems and prose poetry to me felt like really natural. So I kind of flipped between the two, and somehow they fuse together in this book and create something that's I suppose I'm I'm calling it hybrid, but but I think it's something that really has the the power of poetry, and then the kind of maybe linear progression of a, of a novel. Needles. After dinner, Farah is lying on my bed with her hands underneath her head, her sharp elbows pointed up into the air. I am sitting cross-legged by her side, but I am so close to her face that I could see the blue puff cushions under her eyes, like little parcels of pain. I have this urge to press my thumbs gently on each one to see if anything flows out. The stud in her nose is glinting like a star. I am sitting so close to her that I won't have to go beyond a whisper. I can overhear her heart muscles contracting. She's wearing one of Rania's oversized jumpers, which makes her look smaller and paler than she is. 
She rereads a little story I've written about a leopard mother losing her cub to a python. The leopard hunts down the killer python, and in a wild panic, the snake regurgitates the remains of the baby leopard. Mother stands over the decaying flesh remains of the cub for a long time, as if she was praying over the baby's corpse. Then, with great care and attention, Mummy Leopard eats every particle of the cub, and then returns home to grieve under the dapple shade of a tree for several days without eating again for all that time. I watched it on a documentary, but in my story, the animals all have names and voices, and it's a sort of fable. Why your story so sad? Farah waves the pages over her face and balances them in her hands. Farah has such beautiful hands. Someone should paint her hands. They are creaturely and move with bird grace. I want to tell Farah I thought the story was beautiful. The python does what is expected of the python, but the mummy leopard eating every part of her baby is an act of love. I'm not sure how much more I could explain this, even if I could utter it. Everyone thinks leopards should sound like cats, but their sound resembles a bark. It, it is absolutely um, a beautiful read, and um, but it's also a beautiful object. And I just wanted to ask you how it felt to hold this 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 beautiful thing uh, in your hand because the cover art is absolutely beautiful, isn't it? Thank you. Yeah, I think it is. It is a beautiful product. I mean, it is an object and a product as well. And and I, I actually feel that the cover is. It's almost like a tarot card. <laughs> it sort of tells because there's no when 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 um I was and other stories were absolutely amazing. Um, and they suggested a few artists, designers, and um. Holly Ovenden's name came up and I had I've been following her I've been stalking her work on it on various platforms and it and then um and the brief sort of went to her and the design brief and she came back with a number of a, a couple of options and we all decided this was just the perfect way of telling the story because the the sort of fragmentary way of the design on on the, on the cover I think reflects the way the story is told, Ruby's story is told, it's sort of little vignettes, prose poems, and then part 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 long bits of prose. And so I think that it's just really a perfect reflection of the book. It, it certainly feels like it. And, and, and I've found myself, um, I've been lucky enough to get a, um, a pre-sale copy. And, 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 and as I've been reading it, I, I found myself flipping back to that to that cover art um, and just taking it in. I, I just think it's it, it, it's it's one of the most beautiful books um, I, I've seen in a long time. So um, yeah, I, 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 listeners should definitely try to um, see a copy of the cover. And uh, I, I know that they, they say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but uh, I think the uh, the content certainly matches the beauty of it. Yeah, the cover. yeah, in this case you can. <laughs> yeah, so, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> but, I, but I can certainly say that with... Uh, without bias um so so thinking about the writing process for this um uh, for the for the book Mona was it a different writing process um in writing a writing a novel to 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 the one that would have you you'd have followed had you been writing another poetry collection absolutely absolutely um there's that really wonderful quote um uh, by Anne Carson uh, if prose is a house, poetry is a person on fire running quite fast through it. Do you know it? it's such a wonderful sort of, you know, uh, a way of sort of looking at how it feels if, if you know, and I always see 
if you're going to if you're going to sort of extend that a little bit I feel like poetry exists in the kind of attic in in my house <laughs> and you can only access it through like um a fire escape ladder so it's really difficult to access and it's sort of in the corner of the attic and then the prose is in the living room you know expansive you know just beeline <laughs> on the sofa and occasionally in this book I suppose the two meet in the communal areas of that house and and I suppose the way it feels is the poems bloom in the kind of inattentive space that's where they come from but with the prose there is absolute attention um and I suppose if you extended it even further because <laughs> I thought about this quite a lot how does it feel because it feels so different I would say that poems are kind of from a peripheral space and with the prose it feels as if they come from a more sort of the, the more central space and and so and actually with the novel flicking from both sides you can feel how different it feels to be in those different territories it feels different to be writing out of those spaces yeah absolutely and, and in terms of the the mechanics of it were, were you writing it did it feel more like a day job as it were were you writing for a set number of hours per day or were you coming um, coming back to it as 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 the muse took you um not so much a day job I mean I have to say both are really hard to do poems mm. are really really hard mm. prose is really really hard but I think that um with with the novel itself I sort of tricked myself into writing it because the difference of course was that I had this this character and she had this voice and it was a, a sassy it, you know idiosyncratic voice she had it was a young voice and I followed I committed I committed myself to writing her down this this interior voice and I just followed it um so I used to do that every day I used to think well actually I also have to say that when I was doing this, I wasn't writing poems immediately because I just finished writing a book, Small Hands. It had won a prize, the Forward Prize, and which is obviously great, but I also felt quite a lot of pressure to write poems. And so I just felt like I wanted to continue writing, you know, reusing my writing muscle, but I wanted to do something else. And so this this commitment to like following the voice was something that I did every day. I did, it was sort of, you know, the, the actual exercise was, was a mechanical exercise of going to my, to my desk and following that voice. And then at some point I got to about 20,000 words and I thought, Oh, actually this is, this is turning into a, a novel and I need to now bring something else to bear <laughs> to the, to the writing of it. And that's when the form came in. Realizing then that it that it that it was a novel, or that, that there was a, a novel trying to get out of what you what you you'd written already. Yeah, yeah, and it was terrifying. It was terrifying because I thought, oh my goodness, this is this is not poetry anymore. This is this is not this is something else. I need to start thinking of um, form, and I need to start thinking of plot and and progress progression, and how am I how am I going to end the story? You know, um, so it it sort of it meant I had to really think about those things that you know you don't normally have to think about with poetry. Were there any uh, novels or novelists that that influenced uh, the way in which you approached um, writing um, "Somebody Loves You"? Yeah, I mean, loads, loads. I mean, it's it's funny because all of your writing that you, all of your reading that you do, 
you, it, you know, we're very porous, you know, we, we retain it, you know, it retain, we retain it in our body. And I remember thinking of um, things that I had read previously that I could, you know, had, had traveled this kind of familiar territory. So um, there's a, a really great book that I came across called the general theory of oblivion, which is a, it's, it's wonderful. It's by someone called Jose Eduardo Angelusa. And he's got this very interior character is this this is this a uh, very shy girl who basically lives in her house for 40 years without going out. She's a recluse. And so it's all on voice. Um, and then uh, the other per- the other person that really I, I've read loads of and really, really, I think, gave me lots of ideas of how I could write the book was Jenny Offield's Department of Speculation, which sort of has this really weird space where she's a lot of it sort of sits like prose poetry mm. um, and she's got these vignettes. And then um, Lydia Davis is writing again, you know, um, very kind of, they feel like prose poems and, and also poets as well. Uh, poets that have used the prose prose form, people like James Tate, Charles Simich, um, people have got into the, gone into this territory. And then, you know, other other novelists that have just written about girlhood that I've been really interested in. So um, Janet Win- Winterson's Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. Oh, it's just one of those books I've read. I've read. I've read. You know, several times. Um, the Bell Jar again. Girlhood. Yeah. You know, um, and so traces of those books stay with you, like like little kind of echoes. You know, or like veils across your body. And mm. and so I, go, I guess all those books are are. I'd, I'd say inf- light influences on the book. Mm. Yeah, and I was I was getting little bits of um, almost magical realism um, mm. as, as I was reading it. So I, I was I was thinking Marquez from time oh, to time. Yeah. Oh, you're so right. I should have mentioned him. <laughs> him, of course, Marquez. <laughs> um, yeah, Love in the Time of Cholera yeah. is one of my favourite books of all time, and and I love what he does with just um risk taking and going into sort of symbolist flight mm. and there's a lot of flying in in somebody loves you and i think that is probably to do with that reading it's really weird how how much we are saturated with how much we read <laughs> and then how it comes out into our writing angels i went into hospital when i was 9 I was lifted out of my body and I floated up to the ceiling and looked down at my nine-year-old self, a bird-like figure on the pillow, the exact same face as mine, but more vulnerable. I looked at my sleeping girl self from where I floated. I thought from almost every angle how truly pathetic she looked, perhaps because her eyes were softly closed. Was this truly all I was made up of? I made the decision to stay there a while longer, despite their indefatigable pull, that strong-willed force from little me lying asleep on the bed. It was like a sad soap opera. The doctors went in and out. The nurses kept taking blood from a tap in my arm. My mother was crying. My father was crying. But he was holding my bluebird hair clips in his hand. So that's where they went. Nothing hurt, incidentally. My body was somewhat cooler. Nothing mattered. Time didn't matter up there. The minute I awoke, I looked up at the ceiling to check for the other ruby, but she must have gone back inside me now. 
Nothing was so certain anymore, though the colours around me resisted, then returned unrushingly. The sounds in the ward returned themselves, the hospital bed with its heavy, white cold sheets, the curtains with the cartoon world maps. Everything was buzzing. My heart was definitely beating, and I turned to the nurse and mouthed, Ice cream. We've talked about that that kind of hybrid area um, floating somewhere between prose and poetry or the novel and poetry that 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 you think that um, somebody loves you inhabits and I wanted to ask you I mean for me it was very clear through that your use of language and the ways in which your chapters and 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 sections were constructed that this book was the work of a poet but was that something that you were conscious of trying to achieve and show for your readers as as you were writing um that's a really good question and I think that I don't think I was I I, I wasn't consciously doing that um what I was trying to do was to make sure that I was telling the story of Ruby truthfully and and actually to tell the, the 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 truth of her story which involves you know quite a lot of um you know, trauma memory for her. Her mother is a depressive. Um, she has huge issues of of witnessing her mother's, you know, episodes of her mother's trauma. And and I and I guess I found that poetry was a really good vehicle actually to carry some of those memory tra- traumas. And so so that's why the kind of prose poems that the the book is punctuated with with these kind of prose, I would say poems mm. that are that I threw out the book but I didn't think I didn't sort of write the book and think oh I'm just going to write I'm going to insert prose poems now because I'm a poet I just thought I think that is the most honest and truthful way of telling that story of trauma because actually memory is very it's not really linear it's not it's not just like a linear progression it it intervenes the whole time and so it felt like it was truthful to that experience and you know memory is very oozy mm. you know and I love that word because I and because there's, there's a theme of eggs in the book you know the, the 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 book opens with this chapter called eggs and I think that that symbol of you know eggs and and memory and effervescent memory and how we step in and in and out of it I think is a kind of theme of the book and and I th- actually think that poetry is the best way of being able to um explore and be curious about some of these themes yeah and i and i i, I think that really comes across actually that there, there is you know I, I, someone described memory as a as, as like quicksand in a way it's it's yeah, constantly moving that. it can mm. it can kind of suck you in but often memories are unreliable as well and i think mm. you know in, in a way there's something about poetry as you know i can read a, po- a poem four or five times and get four or five different meanings from it from it and and that's a bit like the way that memory works and certainly seems to work yeah. in, in um somebody loves you and and yeah it's that, that sort of i think you've expressed that difficult to pin downness if that's a, that's a phrase that anyone's ever used of 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 memory and ruby's recollections and yeah you know. yeah i mean i don't want to get all freudian about it but um at the end of the day what what memories do is they don't give you the whole picture they infer they nudge there there's ambiguity and and so that's why you know we 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 can 
think that we all share we you know share a memory together and we have totally different versions of of some of, of a memory so and i think that is kind of interesting you know and curious and to to explore mm. marrow Since infancy, my sister has been stimulated by gore, guts and blood. My parents said that when she was still in her buggy, she would sniff the air, aroused by the smell of the butchers, then unbuckle her harness and head to the spectacle of the shop window. She would be at the front of the circle, pushing forward, wanting and also needing to see. For some time, my sister's most frequent questions were, could you see the bone? And how much blood? Rania befriended Martin Higgins at school. He was prone to long nosebleeds. She was always coming to his aid when he was bleeding across the school field during sports lessons or after too much sunshine, which disturbed the delicate blood vessel in the pale and nervous boy's nostril. Whilst the teacher struggled to stem the flow with cigar-shaped cotton rolls, Rania would be by her side, holding napkins and asking, How many pints do you think he's leaked? When will he start clotting? Will he pass out? How long will he keep bleeding for? For some time, my parents harboured a belief that their eldest daughter might train as a doctor or a surgeon. It was a short-lived fantasy, as it quickly became apparent Rania wasn't the slightest bit interested in healing anything. She was just morbidly inquisitive. My parents checked their ambitions and downgraded their hopes to dentistry, followed by pharmacology, then podiatry, until a little while later... They abandoned all hope of the sciences. I want to talk a little bit more about um, Ruby, your uh, protagonist, and a, and a character that I think is going to be um, is going to be really loved, actually. And yeah. and, and in your acknowledgments, you, you say this book is for all the Rubies everywhere. Is, is Ruby? based on anyone in particular or a combination of people and and I suppose I should ask is there is there much of Mona Arshi in uh, in Ruby? I knew you were going to ask that question um no she's not anything to do with me the mother is nothing like my mother this is a work of fiction um but of course you know there are echoes of it's always you know that the writer the writer that leaves a sort of echo or a fingerprint in the work and so I also you know she's an, an Indian uh, protagonist and so I'm Indian but I, I actually feel as if um I think that that's probably where this you know the similarities end this is a work of, of fiction of imagination but I do think that there are things about Ruby uh, that she's saying about silence um, and what she's saying about just the you know the role of the imagination that I think is important and I also feel there was a really wonderful comment um that Michaela Cole uh when she won the Emmy a few weeks ago she says do not be afraid to disappear and what comes to you in the silence and I think that in a culture where so much uh, of what we do is is about speaking and noise and you know um and that's the sort of dominant culture, you know, that we live in. Uh, and, and, and I think there is something quite radical, actually, almost about saying that there is a power in being able to be silent and quiet. 
And actually, Ruby herself, who is selective mute, has worked out that sometimes, you know, there is a power in that. And and that's kind of a strange thing to say in, in a world where, you know, we're speaking our truth all the time. But I also think that there is a need to also be quiet. <laughs> and there's a power in that, too. I mean, in Ruby's case, she it's self-sabotage because there are times when she needs to talk. But I also think that she's worked out that she's not going to sort of take these internalized instructions and do what do what everybody else does. And she's she's defying the kind of culture. And, you know, there's there's a role. There's there's, there's also a, a power in being able to just say, well, actually, today I need to not be noisy. I need to close off the world around me and be quiet. Mm. One of the things I did was um, early on, it was clear that I wasn't going to, she wasn't going to say anything. I mean, she does occasionally talk, mm. but those are very sex- exceptional circumstances. When I started writing the book, I remember speaking to a couple of novelists who said to me, this is your debut novel. Why on earth would you make your protagonist mute? And I, um, you know, because it's like basically writing the book with your uh, arm you know one arm tied behind your back you know why would you make it so difficult on you in yourself and I did think about that and then as I was writing Ruby and writing her out I realized that actually her not talking was a real opportunity because when you suppress it doesn't mean I'm not suppressing her imagination I'm not suppressing her internal voice I'm suppressing her speech that's very different and that actually um was interesting because she goes everywhere she and she's she develops these kind of special like almost antennae um and I remember then coming across an interview with Maya Angelou and and Maya Angelou when she was a child I think she was 10 years old and she was raped and she didn't speak for five years and she speaks about that time when she um was mute and she when she developed these kind of sensitive kind of antennae, she read everything. And I think that when you, it was interesting to me to explore that with Ruby as well. What happens, what happens when language is under pressure? So I guess it was an opportunity actually. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad I committed to that because the results I think are really interesting. I hope anyway. <laughs> because as the reader, we have the insight into, into what Ruby is is thinking, I, I guess, her her internal monologue, uh, which the characters around her wouldn't have the benefit of. So there's a kind of, mm. there's a little translation thing you're having to do in your head to keep reminding yourself of that, I think, as you, as you read. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's a really interesting plot and I, and I think it makes Ruby a, a you know a complex and, and and really interesting character but one that we can we can really love as well my name is Ruby I am skinny and superfluously tall I am skinny because I inherited both my parents propensity for growing thin bones if you met him probably you would think my father is short he tells us he is not unusually so for an Indian man, but by European standards, he is willing to concede. When my family says I am too tall, I assume they mean both in the Western and Indian sense. I suppose I should say at this stage that both my parents are normalish talkers. Let's get that out of the way straight off. I'm not much of a talker. 
by whatever standards you choose to apply. The first time I spoke out at school, I said the word sister and tripped all over it. I tried a second time, and my tongue got caught on the middle syllable hiss and hovered there. The third time, a teacher asked me a question, and I opened my mouth as a sort of formality but closed it softly, knowing with perfect certainty that nothing would ever come out again. I was certain about this the next morning, and even more certain about it the day following that. I uttered absolutely nothing. It became the most certain thing in my life. I was tested for oral dysfunction, mumps, and general stupidity. For a few months, I was even sent up to a clinic to sit in a room with a young doctor. She passed me a cup of broken crayons and some coloured paper to draw whatever my mind rested on. I think I knew at an early stage that this doctor's job was to gently fish inside my head, to get right to the bottom of my talking problems. Because I was a pleaser, I tried very hard with my crayon drawings, and it seemed important to be especially curious about whether the little dolls she placed in my lap were wearing knickers. In those sessions, I drew as if my life depended on it. I drew forests seething all manner of creatures, and I made up a complicated bubble family of rainbow-filled characters. I drew wild deserts and used up all the precious gold cranes for sand dunes, and wasted all the browns on engorged cacti, which seemed to irritate the doctor at the end of our first session. Ruby, what if another little girl or boy wanted the gold crayons for their special drawings and they were all used up? Just think how very sad they might feel. And the way she looked at me at that moment made me feel more wretched and ashamed than anything else up to that point in my life. Even more ashamed than the time I ended up peeing on Mrs Henderson's yellow welcome mat in reception because I couldn't unstrap my dungarees in time. At the end of the sessions at the clinic, I would place my array of paintings on the floor for inspection and the doctor would stand up quickly, peer over my shoulder, turn her head this way and that, weighing up, and then select a few to take away with her. Once, she tilted her head to the side for a long while whilst I waited in the silence, and she took nothing at all. I was free to go home with a pile of rejected papers which now disgusted me just as much as the dirty gum-flecked carpet they rested on. Soon afterwards, I began having night terrors, accompanied by wetting my bed, though I had apparently been a dry girl from an early age. My parents got scared and withdrew me from the sessions. My symptoms quickly disappeared, to their great relief. It was bad enough that their daughter was a dumb mute. A deranged, incontinent mute would have been a step too far. Mona, I, want, I wanted to ask you about the the kind of format of, of, of the story because in many stories about um, Indian or South Asian families in, in the UK, there's often this formula which involves telling the backstory of how they came to be there in ways that we wouldn't necessarily need to feel we needed to express for you know, say British families moving from Scotland to London or American families moving to the UK. And that's a trope that's often seen in films and TV shows as well as books. But your story doesn't really follow that narrative journey. Was that a conscious decision? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked me that question because um, I, I, it was a conscious decision. And actually, when the book was being sold initially, um, I had a sort of gentle pressure to 
um, insert that backstory to put some um, air air into the novel and sort of you know to to tell the story of the, of the of the parents' migration story. And to be honest with you, there are many stories like that, you, novels like that. You can go and read them and buy them. But I wasn't really interested in that story. And I, I also feel as if that I think that this is a book about other things to do with melancholia is to do with the imagination um and I kind of feel like that's what I want to you know I'm interested in as opposed to those universal themes as opposed mm. opposed to a story that's been told and told and told and and I was very aware of that and I think that you know I, I, we have to accept we don't write as you know, brown writers, novelists, poets, um, particularly female ones, we don't write into a neutral territory. Our work is going to be talked about in a certain way or a certain tropes that are more interesting to people. I can't control that. But what I can do is control how I talk about the book and its themes and also what I write. And the migration story is, of course, part of who Ruby is, but it's not the only part of her story. You know, there are more interesting themes that I'm interested in um and so I guess that's that's very much how I sort of con consciously thought about writing the book mm. thank you that's 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 really interesting and and um you know I I I you know having read it I I agree with you that um you know there are universal themes there that that are explored through through ruby that that don't necessarily come from her background and clearly mm. everyone's background is 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 of importance but but um i think to focus too much on that background would be perhaps to you know take away some something of um how ruby is developing and i i, th I think that's really important so writing a novel or a poetry collection is is rarely a, a linear or isolated process and there's always other stuff going on in in your life and I think particularly that must be true of a, a very successful writer like yourself but were you writing poetry and pursuing other projects during the process of writing Somebody Loves You and and how did how did you manage that transition between those projects? Yeah um I was. I mean, it took me five years to write the book. So I was doing lots of other things. I didn't just lock myself in my, that would have been lovely, wouldn't it? I would have finished it very quickly. But no, I didn't. I I was writing, I wrote the second uh, collection of poems whilst I was still, I was doing two, two things at the same time. It was wonderful because the poems and the prose were leaking into each other. So I actually quite liked it I quite liked to have these two sort of things happening at the same time and then and also I was working on a project um, uh, in, in a bird sanctuary in Cly uh, which took up a lot of my time and was wonderful um, and so I kind of like doing lots of things at the same time I feel as if they um, you know they they kind of inflect each other they they there's I mean I'm going to use the word oozy again you know I like the ooziness of it I like the way that you can sort of pivot to one one thing and then the other and you know um so I feel as if I can do I like doing lots of things at the same time and I feel that they I the, the work is richer for that kind of transitioning
The day my sister tried to drag the baby fox into our house was the same day my mother had her first mental breakdown. In many ways, it was the perfect morning for a breakdown. The rain was spitting softly. The Parker's dog just wouldn't stop barking. It went on emitting that terrible noise like it was a machine loaded with everlasting batteries. In the living room, I had just finished watching a long documentary about wild kangaroos. Upstairs, there was the doctor, the aunties, and my father, of course. There was a toy, a miniature replica camera that my sister was jealous of, and she kept prizing the camera from my fingers and pointing it at things she liked the look of and saying, "See, I can click, I can click." Till eventually, I had to steal it away from her and hang the long leather strap around my neck. For days we had known about the foxes. They had come closer and closer to the house and had been chewing on the garden boots my mum had stored under the plastic shelter. I went into the kitchen and the side door was open, and there was Rania crouching on the steps carrying a bundle, a blanket covering the body so that only its ears and eyes were visible. I heard the front door click open, then slam shut. The fox yelped and slipped away. And we didn't see my mother again for three whole months. So you mentioned your Cly project, um, and we're going to hear a couple of poems. We heard we heard two poems from that collection in our recent National Poetry Day um, podcast, and we're going to hear. We recorded a few of them, um, and we're going to hear a couple more now. Perhaps afterwards, you can tell us a little bit more about what that project was about. Yeah, I'd love to. The yellow-horned poppy. When is the time to write about flowers? I want to say sorry, sorry to your crowned petals. You are shy. You don't want to be seen. These are desperate times, and sometimes language picks us clean. I have caught you now flickering in my peripheral vision, nodding in the shingle. Non-parasitic foreigner, I am lowering my eyes. But where can I hold you if I cannot peel back a syllable under the big skies? Before you're gone, we'll stoop and pick up brittle souvenirs, parcel them up in marram grass carried by the Alexanders before they are cut down in the fraying light. What's the name of the bird that once seized Fane's death? Sky without end in these vanishing lands, where pink-footed herds have such quietish roots. So um, I was lucky enough to be involved in a project um, in Cly in Norfolk, and it's a bird sanctuary. And the lovely thing is that my, I've got, I'm very really connected with that area because I did my masters at the University of East Anglia, and I was working with um, a digital company called Mutiny. And so the idea is really unusual, actually, um, the project because normally. You're a writer in residence. You write poems and you publish a little pamphlet and maybe have a little exhibition or something. But the idea behind this was that the destination of the poems was going to be um, actually a, a, an installation 
and also there was going to be a digital installation. So they're going to live in this really amazing hybrid world. <laughs> that word, that word again. And so it was really so I had to think about writing the poems very differently. Um, actually, they were so ear-led, these poems. I had to really think about what the how they were going to be heard by the audience. And also what was going to happen is that the poems were going to be embedded in the landscape. So as visitors to the bird sanctuary walked around um, the area, they could open these digital envelopes on their phone and listen to them on their on their headphones. So really different world um, to be writing into. And also, I just think that thinking about poems existing in a different way uh, was was something I'd never thought about, really, you know. But I think it was such a successful uh, project and something I'd be really interested in working in again, because I think there was a a real ethical kind of philosophical commitment to making sure that what we were doing was writing with Cly, writing with this sensitive area, as opposed to writing for. So everything all the all the soundscape was it were it was extracted from that local area we if we didn't get the geese locally we weren't going to go to Russia and get the geese you know everything was local uh, we worked with this amazing sound recorder called Peter Kuzak and we walked around um, in the middle of the night trying to get like owls and all these sounds and then we embedded the work in this in this uh, digital soundscape um, so it was the most magical, wonderful project, and I really hope that it makes people think about the landscape in a different way and care about the landscape in a different way. For the human, voice of a poem buried in the shingle, North Sea, Cly. We say a heart is heavy when it aches, as a hand aches writing lines in the dark. On the highest shelf of my heart there sits a limpet, empty of course, and next to that, and this is the human part, there is a pistol. Surviving inside the throat of this pistol is a body of a small bird with her own heart beating out, fluttering inside the barrel. Heart, my resolution is not to ache, but to hold. Birds arrive, birds depart, banking, swerving into the marshes, populating these lines. A colony of cormorants lands lightly on a ruby samphard ledge. So many birds, their hearts all moving, much faster than mine. I didn't feel before this that I was a nature poet. um, Even though my parents were from, you know, uh, from the Punjab, which is um, a a village in, you know, a very green area in, in North India. But, you know, a lot of migration here into the UK is an urban experience so there is this sort of double kind of edge where you have people that are coming from countries where there is countryside and then you come here and you're in you're in an urban environment and so there's a real uprootedness to that and that really didn't affect me until I got to Klein I realized how estranged I was from the landscape in the in the United Kingdom 
And so I am now a nature poet, I'm very proud to say. <laughs> and, and and brilliantly so. And I mean, I think that the, the other thing I, I thought about it as well was that you were writing these poems with performance and soundscape and, and environment in, in mind, um, which must be a very different experience, a, a different writing experience. Um, and, and often, you know, we say to poets when we're working with them on the podcast that you need to think of the performed poet as a separate and poem rather, as a separate and distinct piece of art from the poem on the page. And that yes. must have really yes. come across in the work that, that you were yes. doing on that project. Yeah, yes. And that's why I was so happy um, to see, you know, what, to hear what you've done with the with those poems because you kind of understood that um philosophy around how different it is and how they are existing in a very very different way i feel like these poems do not belong on the page they probably will be published on the page but there's a that's a very different relationship that the that the reader will have with with the work um than, than if it's performed in these sort of soundscapes and you're absolutely right they they are they're living in a totally different way I think mm. and, and I think I, I mean we were talking before we we started the interview about the process of uh, one I often go through of, of designing a soundscape for for a poem and I did feel with these that there was there were lots of kind of ways in which they led me into the, the mm. soundscape that ultimately came out where quite often that can be much more difficult or much more in a way contrived and it wasn't just the obvious things around you know there are birds in these poems so I'm going to have some some bird calls in the background it was it was it was much more to it than that and um you know I think I think that's something I would really like to explore more on the podcast of poems written purely for podcast or performance or sound yeah. installation as yeah. you described because it's it's, yeah. a, it's a very you know unexplored area I think and I totally agree with you I totally agree and, and actually one of the poems um that I I wrote was it's the three is three voices three uh three birds all kind of talking in the poem mm. and there's Punjabi in it as well underneath and that's you know, you could do that in a digital setting. Mm. You could do that. I mean, there's no way on the page. It doesn't mean anything um, at all. And it probably looks quite confusing. But on uh, in a digital world, it just it flies. It flies. They're all flying together. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think the one that I, I the, the, the poem um, Egg, which has this kind of circular. So the, the, the first few lines are then. So it looks like the shape of an egg on a page, and we tried to bring that across in a little video that we that we made. But also, it then repeats, and it's some it suggests that sort of circular nature of life, and and the and the you know the way that um, birds migrate and come back and lay more eggs, and then those birds are hatched, migrate, and come back and lay more eggs. And it was a, a lovely kind of expression of that circularity of life. Egg. Can-
carries within it a white library, galleried shelves with radial maps, ancient clocks, and all the old habits. From egg tooth to the hollowed barbule, it's sewn into each feather. These simple, light-boned fledglings, they enter this life, alert to an image of a branch in another world, once they cross the shivering oceans. Once they cross the shivering oceans in another world, alert to an image of a branch, they enter this life. These simple, light-boned fledglings, it's sewn into each feather. From egg tooth to the hollowed barbule, ancient clocks and all the old habits, galleried shelves with radial maps, carried within it a white library, each seamless egg. my favorite one actually i just love the way that it was like never ending is this is kind of constant loop yeah and migration loop as, as well you know that you get with cly of the return which is actually part another part of the kind of themes of the project which which was this this constant return you know mm. of the migration return i just so yeah. yes i totally Love that one. I think Thank the, fi you. <laughs> the final thing I would I want to say about that. I mean, if it, any any of our listeners know Cly, which is on the North Norfolk coast, they'll, they'll know this. But you really do feel on the edge there, don't you? Because you you're mm -hmm. between the land and the sea almost. You you've got the land and you've got the sea, but in between are the salt marshes, which are kind of a hybrid that word again of yeah. of land and sea aren't they because sometimes they're flooded and sometimes they're not and and the birds that that live in those landscapes feel kind of they're they're almost adapted for both environments and it feels yeah. like the poems kind of reflect that somehow they're they're, yeah, they're, I, I they're on the page but they're also designed to be spoken and i agree with you there's something beautiful and awful about that space I mean, I don't mean awful. I mean, you've got to have beautiful and awful at the same time because, yeah. of course, you know that that, that space is so imperiled yes. and you know, we're standing in a space that might not be there in 40 years' time or will be completely diminished in 40 years' time. Mm -hmm. And so that there's a sort of beauty, you know, and, and a, just this awful sense of knowing what's ahead. Um, yeah, and that's, it's also the, the landscape uh, where we set our drama Anglia, which was our our climate change um, drama, because it's the lowest lying land in 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 England, and it will, as you say, it will be the first to go, and it, and it, and it's and it does have that real, I mean, massive skies and and just a, a real unique feel to it, actually, and I think that your your poems um, really reflect that. Hurry, a migration song. Hurry now, you bright-eyed, dark-throated chanters of the Cly. Hurry now from the beach shingle to Arnold's place. 
the croakers, the swift-winged. Hurry now, the kiki of the kestrels, the solitary, you divers, the warblers of the reeds. In thin rain, you soft-crested lapwings, hurry. The wardens of the marsh, little egrets, wind hoverers, into the vanishing, into the bone-white sky, the high banks of the clouds. Hurry now, through the samphire, as pink embeds purple silvers. Hurry, into salt air, come away now. somebody loves you um how can our listeners um get hold of a copy of somebody loved you and um when's it published in in the uk yes so um it's published by and other stories and it's um publication date is the 16th of november and um it's also going to be available as an audiobook and i have recorded that audiobook uh, which is very hard to do, by the way. Um, I I had no idea it takes a, 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 lo- a lot of stamina to read a, an audiobook. Um, and also it's published in the US at the same time um, as well. So it's really exciting that it's going to be up in the, out in the world. And I really hope that people love her voice, love Ruby and as much as I do and fall for her story. Absolutely. And as always, we'll, uh, we'll post links so that you can get hold of a copy of um, Somebody Loves You by Mona Rashi in the show notes for this podcast. Um, finally, Mona, what can we look forward to next from you? Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I, the lovely thing, the most wonderful thing about being a writer is just uh, not no, having an imagination and not knowing what might come next. Um, there are certain things I want to do, of course. You know, I, I'm I'm writing poems. Uh, they are in the attic. They're knocking gently, <laughs> asking me to come and visit them. So I think I probably need to do that and um, and commit commit myself to finishing a book. But I'm also just really excited about you know working with other artists. I mean, one thing this terrible time in lockdown has shown me is that the the lovely community and solidarity that all artists have. And so I love the idea of just collaborating more um, and uh, not knowing, not knowing what's ahead. I can hear all the emails coming in inviting you to uh, to do things <laughs> <laughs> on your computer. Are you are you out there in the in the kind of physical spaces again after after lockdown? Are you are you performing? And yes, talking, I am. It was talking. so wonderful. This weekend I was in uh, at the Liverpool Literary Festival and then Manchester Literary Festival as well, and it was so wonderful and moving to actually see people in the audience um listening to to poems again you know um I just really felt as if there was such a lovely home-like familiarity to be back in those spaces um long may it last absolutely absolutely Mona best of luck with um Somebody Loves You it is a fantastic novel and um it's almost difficult to believe it's a debut novel I have to say um thank you so much for um joining us on Alternative Stories today thank you so much for having me Thank you for listening to this edition of Alternative Stories and Fake Realities with our guest, Mona Arshi. 
The presenter in this edition has been me, Sally Walker-Taylor. The readers were Raki Sharma and Tiffany Clare. The interviewer was Chris Gregory. Sound design, production and music were by Chris Gregory. We would like to thank Mona for her time and support in the making of this podcast. We're also grateful to And Other Stories for allowing us to feature Somebody Loves You today. If you'd like to buy Somebody Loves You, you can do so directly from the publisher by visiting andotherstories.org, where you can buy or pre-order a paperback or ebook version of the novel. We'll post a direct clickable link in the show notes for this podcast. You can also buy the book through all the usual outlets. Alternative Stories is pleased to recommend bookshop.org. All purchases from this retailer support local bookshops of your choice. You can find out more about Mona Arshi by visiting her website, monaarshi.com, and follow her on social media where she posts at arshi underscore mona on Twitter and Instagram where she is at Mona Arshi Poetry. We'll share all of those links in our show notes. If you have enjoyed this edition of the podcast, please consider subscribing to have all of our future editions delivered directly to your podcast feed. We make audio drama, poetry and fiction podcasts, as well as writer interviews and writing advice. Coming soon on Alternative Stories, we'll be sharing a new audio drama, Real Boy by Kaylin Steed. And we'll be chatting to novelist Zoe Gilbert, memoirist Lily Dunn and other guests about the art of storytelling. Mona Arshi, Somebody Loves You, has been an Alternative Stories 2021 production for the Alternative Stories and Fake Realities podcast, presented by me, Sally Walker-Taylor. The Alternative Stories and Fake Realities podcast, audio drama, Poetry. Fiction.